Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And this episode um, might be like a little bit of a departure. Not much, but a little bit from what we normally do. It's sci-fi. Yeah, both of them are considered sci-fi techno thrill. Actually, it's interesting. I looked them up on Wikipedia, and it's like <laughs> ridiculous, the weird, complex little subgenres they'll list. And one of them is listed as a science fiction techno thriller, and the other is listed as an American crime film. Yes. Now you try to figure out for just a moment which one is which as we talk about the fact that for this episode we're going to be looking at two movies that are close to our hearts. Basically one of the categories that shows us a bit more, it doesn't come up all that often, how our childhoods diverge a little bit in time in terms of what things really hit us at comparable ages. And for me, one of the quintessential hacker movies that was a big part of my childhood was War Games from 1983. Yours is Hackers from 1995. And do you have a guess about which one is which, according to Wikipedia? I'm going to guess that they call Hackers a crime thriller. You're correct. Yeah. Hackers they, is they, an, they don't get it. Hackers is a 1995 American crime film. And just oh, to be no. accurate... I left one thing out to make it a little less obvious, because War Games, they call a 1983 American Cold War science fiction techno thriller <laughs> film. <laughs> oh, film! It's a film! <laughs> As opposed to a TV show. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, like, Hackers is one of those movies that I know is, like, one of your go-tos and, like, one of your all-time favorites, like, so many that we share and many that we separately have. And when you came up with the idea of, like, we should do an episode on Hackers, I thought, well, an interesting not counterpoint, but like companion to it would be that for me, the hacker movie that I grew up with is War Games. And they do interestingly share a lot of elements, both plot and visual and other things. But uh, let's lead off with hackers because that's the reason we're, we're talking today. Never fear. I is here. So in this episode, I'll be doing my one-woman show. Natalie recites the entire text of the movie Hackers well, and does all the parts herself. You know, we don't really need... Because I do- can. Well, I'm sure you can. I With can. the music. I'll add the music, too. I can do some of that for War Games, too, but we don't need to do that. <laughs> we can just uh, talk about the, the Which movies. Which is, I mean, my way of saying I've, I've seen it yeah. a few times. It's something you've seen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean... All jokes aside, the music is one of the reasons I've seen it so much. I used to have it on in the background in college and the sort of, I mean, this is before streaming existed where you can't, you couldn't stream internet radio or music and you either had to have a mixed CD or. So you treated the movie like an album. The movie was like an album for me. And so I'd have it on in the back room, like the background while I worked and I had it on so often I don't know if it was really as a joke or just because it clearly was something that I liked. I think it was a little bit of both. One of my college roommates went on like the early sort of iterations of, I think, eBay and bought me a Hackers movie poster, like the kind that would have been in the theater, right. like a theater movie poster. An actual poster. release poster. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible poster. But it bought me a poster to put up in our um, like our campus suite. 
And I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think he thought it was like a funny joke. Like you watch Hackers so much, I'll get you this poster and then you can just live Hackers all the time. I just but tweet- I was like, neat, Hackers poster. I just tweeted that we were recording this and I was wondering, it, I'm assuming there's only like one that's the release poster. It's this, I'm not, I'm not going to turn around the computer right now. It's kind of a neon it's monstrosity. Like blue and purple with their faces up close and it says their crime is curiosity. Boot up or shut up. Uh, no, it's not that one. It's actually. not that one. It's not oh, that okay. one. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll see if I can find a, okay. a picture for you, or that. it exists, sort of rolled up in a corner somewhere okay. at my parents' house. I think. But yeah, I, I, I digress though. <laughs> in jumping. By the way, in. talking about the soundtrack, obviously it's one of those movies where, for many people, the music's a big part of it, and it's no shock then that it was long sought after. Apparently, the soundtrack is kind of problematic and like getting everything in there and inspired other music. And as we found out doing a little research, there are no less than three different soundtrack albums that came out in succession uh, that cover all the music from the film, but then also include the that thing of music inspired by. Almost all the music from the film. There's still some of it that isn't even on those three soundtrack albums let's lead off with one of the real cool interesting things that apparently has only just come to light in the last year or so what Mm. was the big reveal about that one track that you really like uh from what is it the grand station uh, grand central station grand central station and it had long been rumored that someone was involved in that and we looked it up and only in the last year or so did it become revealed i guess because everyone's looking for something they can report on (laughs) in, in quarantine and the guitar riff on that track which is an instrumental track um that plays sort of during a a very stylized hacking scene involving like floating glass phone booths. It's spinning the rotating in place. phone booth thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like until last year, apparently nobody knew who did the guitar riff on it. And I don't know if it's because they just didn't want to be identified or it was like part of the contract. Cause I mean, plenty of musicians sit a session musicians for other people's work. He apparently just did it as a uh, as a favor to a friend. This uh, the article that I found was an article from the Rolling Stone from March, uh, almost a full year ago, March 2020. I think you're right. I think it's people like, can we talk about something? And it was a 25 year old secret. It says here in Rolling Stone, albeit poorly kept and widely known, can finally be confirmed. Yes, that is Pink Floyd's David Gilmore playing one of his trademark guitar solos during a pivotal scene in the 1995 Techie Time Capsule. That's really good too. Hackers, and apparently Guy Pratt, who was their touring bassist and was working on music for the movie, had David over and he was hanging out. He's like, yeah, I'll play on this thing. And they worked on it together and their impromptu jam session became Grand Central Station, credited only to Deep Cover in the end credits. Uh, The song was never tied officially to the guitarist and they just recently put out a like revived soundtrack release of this and it officially says pratt and gilmore and grand central station it's for the 25th anniversary last year and it also threw in more tracks that hadn't been put on the soundtrack or oh it, interesting yeah well if those tracks in- include like the one massive attack song they had in the movie that is notoriously missing from the soundtrack the two lp hackers reissue that came out last year includes pratt's one combination simon boswell's hacker suite as well as Left Field's Open Up and Massive Attack's Protection. Hey, neat. There you go. I gotta go get some more soundtracks. 
So there we go. Well, then I take back what I said about almost all the music being well. Well, there's, not there's still now. there's still a couple tracks that are probably unless they didn't list everything new. There were still a couple songs, including um, I think an Elastica track. Um, it's all very of a time, and it kind of sparked a love of electronic music for me because then that sort of sends you down that rabbit hole and trying in the mid 90s to go down that rabbit hole and figure out who all these bands were and and what else they had done and how to find it was certainly a lot more complicated than it is today because you can just get on google and find somebody's discography and there it is but you know if you are just learning who prodigy is by watching hackers and even then you don't even know the band name necessarily unless you can suss it out so, you know, it, it took some work, but it was a um, big part of the movie for me was all the music. And obviously they did create that soundtrack with great intention. And they had done, I think it's a, is the same director as Train Spotting, Ian Softly? No, because um, that would be uh, Danny Boyle from oh, okay. Days Later. But what we did find out was that uh, he did Backbeat. Or hackers gotcha about the beatles we watched the rare thing we don't always do it mainly because a lot of the times we're talking about movies we both know pretty well yeah but we watched the behind the scenes thing because another thing that that has come up in the past i think we've talked about it more in like doctor of the dead in the past is that even for films you grew up with or loved you never used to like be the type that would necessarily go for all the behind the scenes stuff or research it a lot not really so the backstory of this movie was something that you were discovering a bit this time too but we found out that ian softly who directed this also directed the skeleton key which we talked about a while back Mm -hmm. there was a lot of good stuff in that behind the scenes piece about how real thoughtfully they put this movie together in a way that i was kind of surprised i had I wouldn't say like a low opinion of the movie, but I didn't expect the movie was quite as perceived as faithful to the actual hacking community. It seems so, and it is, it's so heightened and so fanciful in in certain ways, and yet it is still very reflective of truth about a lot of things, not least because they actually spoke with and uh, consulted with people in that community to sort of get it right. And I was kind of uh, surprised. I gained a lot more respect for it because in and around the cartoonish stuff that they sort of laid on top to give it the visual Mm -hmm. uh, sheen, underneath all that, it's not really far off, apparently, from the behavior, the the, uh, technology, all the kind of stuff those hackers were doing. I mean, the reason I I bring up Trainspotting 2 and all of it is that, well, number one, Johnny Lee Miller is in both mm-hmm. i mean train spotting was really sort of what launched him to a certain extent and also that the train spotting soundtrack did extraordinarily well and that movie being scored a certain way including with techno and electronica um and there's sort of some crossover in some of the artists on both soundtracks including mm. underworld who sort of became known after train spotting for doing electronica that was in movies mm. it sort of like became their thing and so a lot of people like the best known song really they've ever done probably is one they did that's on the train spotting soundtrack um, but they're also in this movie as well having spent a lot of time talking about the music though we should probably step back because obviously your love for the film is certainly not just based on the soundtrack entirely 
and we should lay out a bit about the plot and for those that don't know it's one of the movies that one another thing too i looked up i wanted to find a nice companion piece i already had war games in mind but i was looking up hacker movies i was kind of surprised at some of the movies that pop up we both love the remake of the italian job and that one comes up quite a bit and there are a lot of other movies that feature hacking maybe not as the dominant plot but as a major plot point including one by the way i'm going to bring up because any fans of a lot of the other things we'd all talk about will surely remember this but the basic layout being that we got this sort of community of hackers. They seem to exist in sort of an underground society, their very own, with their own clubs and their own behavior and language. And they come up against a corporate entity that is also using a slightly older and slightly more cynical and money-oriented hacker uh, to help them with their security. And it basically becomes a war of the minds and skill when those that have the social and cultural awareness that our heroes do have to find a way to take down the corporate side of things and show them who's boss. And in the meantime, although it's not a driving force, there is sort of the romance aspect too of putting together Johnny Lee Miller's character with Angelina Jolie in one of her earlier parts, where she's one of the evidently premier hackers of her generation, and he was someone that was very big when he was a little kid, put away and eventually told that he couldn't do computers anymore. But of course, once he's of age and able to do it, he's right back in the game. And they all decide to team up against evil Fisher Stevens, the, the evil hacker, who, who also has as a sidekick, Lorraine Bracco, several years out from Goodfellas and apparently just showing up. And She <laughs> was like, I don't know if she was on like Clonopin or something. Like she delivers her lines with the sincerity of the person who sells you your ticket at the subway station and it's just it's such a weird thing that she's doing i think she's trying to be tough talking career woman but she just comes across as like vacant and confused also there are a lot of things that i notice in it that feel like this movie, while capturing a moment in time in the 90s, is also very clearly both reverent of, I think, and very keenly aware of its history. And there's a lot of great payoffs for people who recognize older hacker stories or appreciate older stories about this. War Games is not the only one, because there's definitely stuff that connects the two. But other things I noticed, for instance, is that one thing that comes up in this movie is uh, like a tapeworm, a worm program they have that's collecting pennies on the dollar. And when you say they, you mean evil hacker. Evil hacker. Yes. Yes. Because our, our heroes would right. not be even that way. He's, he's doing it where he's created a program that is leeching away, embezzling money by taking away all these pennies from transactions and dumping them into another account and slowly assembling all this. Part of that plot also involves a fleet of oil tankers they're let out into the ocean and are being controlled entirely, navigated by computer. Those two elements, now there are some of you out there that may recognize this right away where I'm going, those two elements are exactly the main plot of Superman 3. And it's Richard Pryor who's brought in by Robert Vaughn in that to take control of the oil tankers, lead them into the center of the ocean and leave them there. And he's also got the pennies on the dollar thing. Um which in this case Superman has to take care of. And actually, Johnny Lee Miller was once uh, mentioned as a possible Superman. I ask you to kill Superman, and you're telling me you couldn't even do that one simple thing. If that sounds familiar to you not being a fan of Superman, it may sound familiar because 
in the period of time after Hackers, you get Office Space, <laughs> which a lot of people love, which also works on a similar premise. And I think right. the in-joke in that movie is they say, like, it's like Superman. They did it in Superman 3. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But... They don't mention the fact they did it in Hackers too, because yeah, no, I guess no. that doesn't exist as a concept movie. Well, it was much more recent. So, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's sort of a way of saying the idea of money as data mm-hmm. is something that's sort of evergreen. And, like, it doesn't even – like, you could do it today in the sense that there now exists currency that is only data. Sure. Like not just Bitcoin, but there's all kinds of other virtual currencies that people are trying to sort of get traction for and gain momentum for that is literally just bits of data moving back and forth. I mean, as you and I have have often talked about lately anyway, and, and as we're recording this, the whole story is going on about GameStop and the other stock market stuff that's going on. There's a strong argument to be made that all money is fake and an illusion so there's that too i mean Mm -hmm. you know all these generations ago when human beings looked at like shiny rocks and said the gold oh that'll be worth more it's like it's meaningless it's absolutely meaningless so pretty though but it's very shiny it just shines uh it shines a lot like many of the outfits in this movie (laughs) i love the outfits so much there's neoprene and like satiny outfits i did want to mention two other things briefly we'll get to the plot we promise okay uh (laughs) well i mentioned a little bit of the plot there are two other things that are also sort of in the DNA that I really appreciated. One is I feel like a lot of the look of this film is also very keenly aware of the 80s, like cyberpunk techno feel of things like Max Headroom and particularly the Max Headroom TV show, which was post-apocalyptic. But when we do that scene where they go to that real like day glow uh, club that oh, they go to. Cyberdelia is the club <laughs> I wished I could hang out at in and, high school <laughs> and they have their like uh crystal clear see-through laptops and everything a lot of that is so max headroom in in that way and the thing is the hackers while having a science fiction feel to it is contemporary it's not supposed to be the near future it's no, just it's, supposed to be then it's now uh the other thing is that right at the beginning of the movie uh they have an outer limits playing in the background and you can barely hear Vic Perrin's control voice monologue, but I looked it up because I was thinking, okay, none of these things were ever an accident. There is nothing wrong with your television set. And I looked it up, and it's one of the all-time most famous episodes of Outer Limits. In fact, it's the Outer Limits episode that partially inspired, or at least was included in, Alan Moore's Watchmen it's an episode called The Architects of Fear, where a group of scientists get together and decide that the Earth's going to destroy itself unless we present everyone with a common enemy, and they choose one of their own to surgically alter into an alien, except things go horribly awry. It's a very painful, heart-rending story, but it has inspired a lot of other stories, and it's interesting to me that a story about fooling the world using a, a trick there, there are aspects of that episode that aren't exact, but I feel like obviously there's some meaning there that they mm-hmm. threw that in the beginning. There's just so many references built in throughout the movie. To me, I think that's one of the things that makes it just so phenomenal that there is not, in my opinion anyway, there's not a wasted moment on screen. That everything they're doing is in service to the plot, is in service to the characters. Like There's a lot of times we'll watch a movie and we'll say, you know... 
we probably could have trimmed maybe like 10 or 15 minutes out of this film because yeah. some of this stuff is extraneous. To me, Hackers is just so cleanly put together that all of it is intentional. All of it makes sense. They try for some like odd angles and just sort of sometimes a little like on the nose, almost like corny shots where there's the part where you've got, I mean, the names are fantastic, but you've got um, Freak, who's the Phantom Freak. Mm-hmm. And he is talking to Johnny Lee Miller, who to them originally is Crash Override. Then they find out Zero Cool is who he was as a kid. But he's also Dade. Just Dade. But just Dade. Yeah. And he's talking to him and he has this very like serious face of, I know you play the game. And like as he says that, there's like the swoosh of a basketball like into the net behind Dade's head. And it's so cheesy, but it's just so right. It's just kind of amazing. Talk about cheesy, by the way. We also have Matthew Lillard in this mm, as serial killer. Serial is in the cereal you eat. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those guys like Jeff Goldblum, where when you grow up with them, you think initially, like when I first started getting to know Jeff Goldblum, one of the times I first saw him was in The Fly, that I really was paying attention to his performance. I can't go back to that movie now, but... And he was doing this thing throughout that movie where he kept like doing like a line and I can't do it for all in the podcast, but then he like flick his tongue. At the time, I thought, oh, that's brilliant because it's like a fly kind of thing he's doing. And then you watch him in every other performance he ever does. And he was already doing that before and he does it. It's just him. It's just his tick. He's just him. So there's a lot of that. Lillard, this is like one year off from Scream. And he's doing that thing where he sticks his tongue all the way out when he laughs. It's like, that's not a character thing. That's him being crazy the way he is. And it was fun because he's one of the ones that shows up for that behind the scenes. And he's really happy to talk about this and talk about how for him it was all about like he feels like people. I think the line he said was people like to watch energy on screen. So that's why he like plays over the top. Like he really blasts you out of the, the seat. He also joked in the behind the scenes documentary that he was originally up for the part that went to Johnny Lee Miller. I'm not so sure about that. And I mean, whether or not it's true, the amusing like lamentation was that if he had been, maybe it would have been him who was briefly married <laughs> to Angelina Jolie in the mid nineties. Right. Um, but you know, it wasn't, and it is true. They, I mean, yeah. Johnny Lee Miller, Angelina Jolie, they met on this film they got married shortly afterwards. They were divorced before the end of the 90s. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's like this strange little blip for both of them. It was but the like, 90s, man. Clearly, I think all of the efforts that they made to have the group of them spend time together before filming to try to make them this cohesive unit certainly did something that like created this connection between the two of them which by all accounts i would say was probably authentic it just wasn't i guess sort of something that could last in this weird hollywood world that there is well we also talked about when we were watching it she also has quite a look at this time she's really cute and she hasn't quite gotten that a-list actor is now feeling like she needs to starve herself that she had later so she looks good he looks good Everybody looks real. Yeah, they look like real people. They look like real... I mean, they look like... Dressed crazy, but they look like real people. I was going to say, they look like sort of uh, like a hyper-real 
style, mm-hmm. like a hyper real style of like what sort of like rave culture was in the 90s, like late 90s, early 2000s. They're like this exists in this weird in between time between club kids and rave culture. And they just sort of exist somewhere there in the middle I don't know that I knew anyone who styled themselves in quite as extreme a way, at least not on a daily basis, but I knew people who dressed kind of like that, like going out, like going to a club or something. Mm. So it was not like completely fanciful. So I also mentioned there's some interesting other casting things here. Penn Jillette shows up and Mark Anthony, singer Mark Anthony. But he's, like, got a very small part as a special agent in this. And then, like, blink and you miss her, but future felon Felicity Huffman appears as a prosecuting attorney. In the very first scene. Oh, the irony. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, some interesting stuff. I don't know. Some people would know Jesse Bradford, I guess. Uh, yeah. Okay. Is it, am I too old? Is that, is that what that is? You may recognize Jesse Bradford as Eliza Dushku's brother in Bring It On, who's Kirsten Dunst's love interest, or from the really specifically weird stalker movie Swim Fan about somebody who becomes super obsessed with a competitive swimmer played by Jesse Bradford. I think I saw that. I don't know why swimming is what they picked for that. It's so out of left field. But I think I saw that. He did all of these things in within like five or six years of each other. And he was the one whose character in this movie is sort of mapped on to one of the guys that was one of their consultants, apparently. Yeah, although I think the consultant doesn't love the fact that he's the one who is sort of young and dumb and doesn't quite know what's going on, but clearly has skills and like just wants to be a part of it. So I think he would have liked to have been portrayed as like slightly more together because it certainly sounds like he was. But it's just kind of an amazing, it's an amazing thing once you realize how real they tried to make the characters. And I think it's difficult to describe if you weren't someone who was interested in computer culture in the late 80s and like early mid 90s. Because today, when you use the term hacker, it's like almost universally people use the term to talk about somebody who is doing something absolutely evil or like nefarious. Either that or somebody's figured out a way to make Ikea furniture do something different. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I guess when you're talking technology, you know, you're always talking about a hacker who steals access to your account who goes fishing for your personal information so that they can get into your bank our heroes in this are like social activist hackers and in a sense it's a lot of what the hacking community was in the late 80s and early 90s it was a community of people who understood the potential of technology and understood the reach and the things that could be done with it And essentially what they were doing is what now you talk about is people who were like modding things. Like they were just trying to figure out with all of this technology that exists, what else can I do with it that isn't already being done? And a lot of that just involved playing around with it physically. And some of it certainly involved doing things that legally they were not supposed to do. 
But a lot of it, I think, was in service to understanding how something worked. But also part of it, part of the driving plot is they're going to eventually, by the end, reveal to the world some of what's going on with this one particular, is Ellingson, the company. They do a big reveal where it's Lillard's character that appears on the screens in the city. Isn't that kind of like, for good and bad, kind of what we now are familiar with people like groups like Anonymous and WikiLeaks also doing? Yeah, the the term that people use now is hacktivist. Yeah. Of like people who are trying to use that for good. I get the impression, at least in the movie, they were portraying them, at least at the get-go, as people who were just very intelligent and very curious and like wanting to know how things work and kind of impish. You know, they have what is... I guess now probably something that would not be considered something the heroes would do, but our two main characters are sort of locked in an adorable high school battle of like who's the better computer hacker and they try to prove it by just torturing the living daylights out of one of the special processes, Secret Service agent, I think, who's involved in like arresting hackers and they just try to make his life miserable, which now I think would be something that would not be portrayed in the same way in a movie, Mm -hmm. but mostly because now I think people just have this impression of anybody who is like playing around with computers as somebody who doesn't have good intentions. Mm. And it's like, they can get away with it because we know our heroes in the movie are not evil people. Like, they're not going to do anything to physically harm him. They're just going to make him miserable. I mean, one thing is we we do have an evil hacker, and that's Fisher Stevens' character. At this point in time, a lot of people probably would have been surprised to find out he didn't have an Indian accent because he was most famous for a lot of us anyway. I For a while, I only had ever seen him in short-circuit movies, and he plays what now I figure is one of your classic very politically incorrect stereotype characters played by a white actor and then he turns up in this uh uh as our main villain the plague who has lorraine brock the very confused lorraine brocco as his assistant someone didn't bother reading my carefully prepared memo on commonly used passwords now then as i so meticulously pointed out the foremost used passwords are love sex secret and god So, would your holiness care to change her password? A hacker planted the virus. Virus? But he also is like just, and clearly when you see the the interview stuff, he's just like relishing this evil villain. He's, you know, he looks, visually looks perfect. And I think one of my favorite moments visually is the one that a lot of people apparently love, which is him just skating out of the fog one night to like pick up the disc that Miller's supposed to be giving him as a drop as part of a deal. And he like, the, his car drives by, but he's hanging on the outside of the car skating past him and it's just absolutely insane. Yeah, you say skating through the fog, but he's like on a skateboard being pulled by a limo. <laughs> That's, and he um, also, when there is sort of the incursion into the mega computer, which they have lovingly called the Gibson, which is not an actual computer name, but an homage right. to the author, William Gibson. And he skateboards into the room and like, whacks the skateboard with a foot like does like the catch the skateboard move and is like never fear i is here and you're like you are such a nerd like you are such a nerd and it's like it's the two directions you can go it's like you see the rest of these kids who like clearly 
are on the fringes of like the social scene, like in their high school. But they're cool to each other. But they're cool to each other. And then you've got the plague who probably didn't have a peer group like they have. It was yeah. probably just him. He was probably bullied incessantly and ended up being just an absolute jerk. Yeah, you don't really see much of that happen to them. Not really. Like we don't really see a lot of the high school dynamic of like there being another group that doesn't like them. They seem like they're doing okay. And I think a lot of that was probably inspired by the actual group that they met with. Because it was like the group that would get together and meet. It was 2600, the Hacker Quarterly. There was a huge age range and there was a a huge amount of diversity in that group. And they tried to reflect that in Mm. the characters. And it's one of the things a lot of people have talked about as being one of the hallmarks of this movie is showing how diverse that community was then and still is now. I mean, it, it was something where you on film, when you see people who are dealing with technology, you pretty much only get white guys and then you'll have maybe some Southeast Asians who are like working in sort of as underlings. And it's like, you rarely see women. You rarely see people of color. You rarely see any kind of range of like socioeconomic representation. And like, you see that here, it's like Dade and his mom are very much sort of like middle-class You've got Matthew Lillard, who his character, uh, serial killer, who they also his they gave his given name as Emmanuel Goldstein, which is in and of itself an alias from the hacking community. Yeah. So it's all like woven in. They have him constantly like couch surfing, like he doesn't even really live at home with his parents. And then you've got Kate Libby, who's Angelina Jolie's character, whose mom has made like millions of dollars writing really crappy looking self-help books and lives like in an amazing like Manhattan apartment. And they all interact with each other in a way that says none of that matters because the fact that they're all part of this like computer community is like the great equalizer Mm. for them. And my understanding is it's that's that's certainly true to the time and like real of that time. And it's one of the things that really, to me, sets us apart from a lot of other movies that try to represent this community and sort of fail miserably at it. One of the things that you and I both hate about sort of the modern movie review scene is the fact that everybody uses Rotten Tomatoes as like, this holy grail of understanding. I just, I mean, even right down to the graphic design part of me, I despise the fact that every damn new release now, Blu-ray or whatever, has to have that incredibly ugly Rotten Tomatoes thing slapped on the cover. I don't need to see that crap on the nice movie poster. And it's one of those things that drives both of us insane. And if you look at Rotten Tomatoes for the movie Hackers, yeah, the tomato meter score for critics is 33%. And that is based off of reviews by 45 critics. That's the other thing too. The percentage varies wildly, doesn't it? Because if there's only a certain number, they still show you the same the, uh, percentage. Yeah. So 33% based on 45 reviews. The audience score is 68% based on over 100,000 reviews. To me, it's one of those things where movies, I mean, obviously at the time, it also did not 
achieve critical success. It's one of those movies I had no idea had become like a cult classic favorite. I just knew that I loved it. I didn't realize it. And this is a running theme for me. One of my other absolute favorite movies is Drop Dead Gorgeous, which I found out more recently also has like an amazing like cult community following to it. And I just didn't realize it for either of them. I just love them. But you get films, especially now, who if you get a bunch of critics in there who don't understand what they're trying to do and they pan the thing and that's it. It's over. Meanwhile, if you actually have people watch it, I think it's much more reasonable to say that nearly 70% of the people who watched it enjoyed it. It's like all you got to do is actually watch it. Meanwhile, in the critics' world, we found out from that behind-the-scenes thing, you got Mark Kermode, who is like uh, now considered like you know one of the great English film critics. He's uh, you know, written tons of stuff. He's written works for the BBC, and he popped up in the behind-the-scenes stuff. And it turned out he started his career right around the time Hackers came out, and has apparently devoted a little slice of his career ever since to trying to explain to people how wonderful Hackers is. <laughs> And he loves the movie and he's quite a champion of it. So apparently it was like him and one other writer like in the room at the critics premiere who were loving it and like a whole room full of people who just didn't get it. Yeah. And I can see that. I certainly can. But it's to me just a real extraordinary piece of work. I think one of the things I won't I, I certainly don't say this as a criticism of it, but I I wonder because like we were talking in the beginning. Part of this genre, this little subgenre, often also intersects with the areas of near future or dystopia or even post-apocalyptic. And like I mentioned Max Headroom, and I don't know how familiar you are if you ever saw any of the Max Headroom show. I've seen clips. It only lasted a short time, but it was wonderful. And and I still remember, and I'm sure anybody that knows it probably knows this is one of the things that was awesome about it was that the computers at the television station they worked at all had like vintage looking round key typewriters on them it was like one of their little steampunky things that's definitely science fiction hackers is not science fiction quite i mean you could certainly argue there's stuff in the movie that did not exist in the 90s doesn't quite exist that way now i mean that whole computer room like when he when he does skate in the eye is here scene and there's stuff like that, but this idea of all these towers, there were elements of them physically creating a visual look to try to translate for the audience, here's the coolness of the computers and how they operate, that may not have been strictly real. And in some respects also reminds me of Superman 3, because Superman 3 also ends with the idea of a giant computer built in a mountain where we're all actually inside the computer. And in a way, that scene feels like we're supposed to be inside the computer system. All those towers mm -hmm. were in it. This is not strictly science fiction, but I wonder to what degree a movie like Hackers confuses people that aren't paying attention to feel like, oh, wait, is this supposed to be science fiction or not? Like, I wonder if because it's in this very unique area of it's contemporary, but it's also heightened, but it's also trying to be accurate to the community, but we're also visually tweaking what computers are like, and someone who's not very open to that as like a weird hybrid kind of approach might say, yes, but it's neither here nor there. And therefore I'm confused. I wonder if that's what a lot of those critics were incapable of processing. And then also now coming back around to it, if you don't know what things were like at that time, you can find the sort of 
cutting edge technology aspects of it to be laughable. Like there's a scene where they're gushing over the fact that a laptop has a 28.8 BPS modem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> this modem they've got. You know, or the fact that you can fit an entire file that is this worm that'll take money away from an entire corporation and the whole program fits on a floppy. Yeah. It feels so silly now if you look at that. But also if you know what computing was like in the 90s, it doesn't feel as silly to you. So I do think you're right. I think maybe calling it cyberpunk works a little better than calling it sci-fi. Like in the same way that you would call like some of the touch, like you'd call futuristic touches that are added to more historical context that like steampunk. And then yeah. the fact that a lot of this too seems to have been inspired by or influenced by the type of worlds that Gibson created in his novels, right. which are right. cyberpunk. I mean, he invented the word cyberspace. I also apologize for the typing that probably comes across uh, in the audio, but I was looking something up. You can't win because like this movie does too. If you're going to mention the modem, if you're going to actually use accurate terminology, it's going to age the moment the movie comes out, even before that. Mm -hmm. There's no avoiding it in that kind of world. But the only other option then is to not say it or make up something silly and then you'd be accused of not reflecting reality if that's what you're trying to do. So, And I think they kind of walk the line with it. And it's one of the reasons, to me, the movie still stands up. I guess maybe ironically, one of the reasons is they didn't use computer graphics to make like all of the sort of... <laughs> cyberpunky looking stuff That's it was stuff. all practical all physical models they created models with like translucent towers and had like overlays of what would be the um like whenever there was text flashing on one of the computer towers and they're scrolling through files that was all done with like cello sheets over top of a translucent thing it's basically like watching gumby it's mm -hmm. like claymation and the and, guy who did all that went on to do, like, all the latest Star Wars movies and everything else, so... Like, clearly skilled at this. Yeah. It's sort of ironic that a movie all about computing wouldn't use computerized graphics, which did already, in a certain sense, exist. But see, I think that's one example we were just talking about. I think it succeeds, then in not aging as badly as it would have. Exactly. Because the other thing, too, is you do see some real old Mac desktop metaphors going on on the screens. That stuff looks so old now. I know, but it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Yeah, and I mean, it's still, <laughs> it's accurate to the time. Yeah. Again, it's not like this is supposed to be the future. It was supposed to be 95, right. so that's fine. But then you get the other stuff, and it sort of puts it out into a slightly different world that means it doesn't age as badly. And it's pretty impressive, the tabletop model work in particular. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And it's fascinating to me that doing all of that practical work is actually what allows the technology to age in a way that actual technology doesn't. We joked recently where we were flipping through TV channels and Shrek came on TV. Mm. And we were looking at it and we were like, I can't believe we all thought this was sort of like the pinnacle of animation because it looks like a coloring book now oh, it's when horrible. you look at it. It is horrible. And it's just fascinating to me because it just moves so quickly. The technology moves so quickly. And they were able to like 
freeze it in time by not using it, yeah. which is kind of cool in its own way. And I also think as much as you can find all of those visual representations of computing a little cheesy, sort of the word du jour with this, it's such a great way to translate a concept to a visual medium that a layperson can understand. I do like the cookie monster part, though. Yeah, I mean, all the types of viruses that they sort of deploy against this supercomputer in an effort to extract the proof of this plan, they're all actual types of viruses that obviously don't look like that on the screen, but they have like a rabbit and they have like cookie monster that's sort of like ravaging through here. And... Going after the colonel. It's going after the colonel. Colonel who? Need a flu shot. It's like, (laughs) it's sort of crisis communications in like this hyper stylized world. It's a great way to make computers look more interesting than visually they would look. Because if you just were going straight fact, this is what it is to compute. It would have just been all of them tippity typing away with like green text like command line stuff yeah i mean it just green or white text depending on what operating system you got going there on a a dark screen and it's just characters it would have just been characters going Mm. and going and going and going there's no visuals and so they found a way to make that work in a stylish way I can't think of anything else about this in the moment. Uh, Although like a lot of movies, either one of us or both of us love, I'm sure you could do another whole episode on it and not overlap if you had a chance. But if there's one thing about the movie, what's like the one thing when you think of hackers, is there one thing that comes up more than anything else? Is it the music? Is it a character? What is it about the movie? That's your singular thought. I think for me, it's like a feeling. Like the movie itself is a feeling. And it's this feeling of what's possible if you get smart people together who all think creatively and want to do what's right. And it's that possibility that's sort of intoxicating about it. And then adding the music and adding the clothes and everything else on top of it makes it sexy on top of being just unbelievably cool (laughs) in terms of, of everything that they're doing. I still love the idea of sort of learning how to make something work technologically speaking or online I'm certainly by no means a programmer and I think that I personally just have my own limitations in terms of what I do understand and what I can do and I'm very task oriented I can learn to do a specific thing and to me that's enough and I, I hope that for some people having seen the movie maybe inspired them to say, you know, I could do that too. Because I do think that without those two important qualities of creativity and the desire to do good with it, you need that in the world of technology just for the good of all of us. Shall we play a game? So as I said before, I was thinking to make a complete episode because it feels like we usually at least do two things. I was trying to think of what would be a companion when you first brought up hackers. And there really was only one choice. I did do a a little research just to see if anything else leapt out at me. Interestingly, although we're not going to delve into it much, although we easily could, 
Sneakers was another one that came to mind. We've watched that in the past. It was a few years before Hackers, uh, but obviously a much older group of people at a different point in their lives doing a lot of the same things and and uh, from the same community. But War Games was the only one that I thought of. It was my Hacker movie growing up. Uh, it's interesting, too, is that David Lightman, Matthew Broderick's character in War Games, is definitely not cool in the way that he's your classic little geeky guy and very socially awkward he has like a little bit of the dna of what would become ferris bueller a few years later but ferris is cool david is not and war games is also as much as hackers is a product of its time war games is absolutely 100 percent, absolutely buried under the second cold war nuclear fear that we were all consumed by and it's 1983 and we're talking about a time where the day after is on television and quite a time for me for movies, too, because right around that same time in those years, we're talking about like last episode, The Thing the year before and Star Trek 2 and so much stuff that for me was like is seared into my brain. And War Games may not be quite at the top of that list, but it was one that if you're watching cable at that time, I saw it four million times i know all the lines i you know like you were just saying you know i remember i could hum all the music from war games i've always loved the soundtrack of this movie it's not at all the hacker soundtrack it's not <laughs> music in that way although it has some amazing pieces that are also seem counterintuitive to what you'd expect including the end credits music which is very whimsical and and um it's not not like a techno thriller score for the most part but if Hackers is about a group trying to like, be hacktivists in some sense, we've got 1983 and War Games where David is just a little geeky kid. He wants to play a bunch of games that he heard a company nearby might be developing. He's got the modem where you put the phone into the cradle and everything goes, you know, and he's trying to figure it out. And accidentally, wouldn't you know, it hacks into a computer at NORAD that just so happens to sort of be driven by the personality of its creator who was mourning the loss of his son and had turned the computer in a weird way into kind of a reflection of that relationship. And so it thinks of itself as Joshua and decides to play a game with this kid. Of course, the game is Global Thermonuclear War, and soon the game is real. And it this I didn't even realize until doing the research when we talked about after watching it, just what a huge impact this movie had on the real world. This movie was directly responsible for some of Reagan's decision-making at the time that led to early computer-related legislation, Star Wars program, lots of other stuff. This movie had a huge impact. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yeah, and if Hackers is a reflection of where that community was, sort of maybe arguably coming toward the end of its first real generation Mm. this is it sort of toward the beginning with many of the same people involved in the real world and interestingly i mentioned sneakers the two guys that wrote this walter parks and lawrence lasker came up with this idea and while they were researching it at the end of the 70s also came up with the idea for sneakers so they would wind up writing that film about 10 years later and this movie is just filled with character actors of the 80s who are a part of that time in a really significant way. You got Broderick, Ali Sheedy in one of her first parts. Uh, Dabney Coleman is McKittrick, the scientist who was the partner of the mysterious guy who had invented the, the Whopper computer that thinks it's Joshua. But that guy disappeared and went underground and they bring him back, of course. And Dabney Coleman was the one that stayed as part of the system and 
is is smart clearly, but also has a, a short fuse and doesn't quite understand what they're dealing with. And it's also just tons of other character actors. And one thing you noticed, like at the very beginning, we get this look at what a nuclear test is like, where they're they're drilling the guys in the silos to see if they'll actually turn the keys and launch the missiles. And the two guys there are Michael Madsen in one of his earlier parts and John Spencer that a lot of people would know later from West Wing. And so and Eddie Deason, because it's an 80s movie and Eddie Deason has to show up and be Eddie Deason. For like three minutes. Yeah. Where are you guys dumb? You guys are so dumb. I got this thing all figured out. I figured it out all by myself. <laughs> and, uh, and James Tolkien, the principal from Back to the Future, he also shows up as one of the agents. So it's like all those people that are like part of my childhood. And I love this movie. Mainly the thing I love most about it is John Wood, who plays Dr. Stephen Falcon, who is also the voice of the computer. Which, as a kid, I know it sounds crazy if you think about it now, but as a kid, I never made that connection that he's also doing the voice, but of course he was. And uh, John Wood is one of those guys as Falcon that I always classify as honorary doctors from Doctor Who who never actually played the Doctor, but were clearly playing a version of the Doctor in the role they were in. This is a very specific category. Doctor Who fans will understand what I'm talking about <laughs> immediately. We all have this list. It's a very similar list for a lot of us. Probably at the top of the list for most of us is Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka. That's definitely a doctor. And John Wood's Stephen Falcon is definitely a doctor who's been on Earth for a long time. I don't know what you think you could do here, Stephen. John, good to see you. You see, the wife still picks your time. What has this kid been telling you? And his role in that third act is exactly what the doctor would do, including, as you pointed out, being a bit dickish and knowing a bit more about what's going on, but letting them figure it out before he says anything. Yeah, he's like, the computer is about to destroy all of us in a nuclear holocaust, and I know how to stop it, but I'm going to let them figure it out. The let's kid, see if the kid can do it, huh? Let's see if the kid can do it. Pop quiz, hotshot. Exactly. It's like, um, you but, could also just tell, you could tell them. But uh, there's there's as much as Hackers captures the 90s, there's a lot about this movie that captures the 80s. And the thing is, it's one of those movies, I think we've talked in the past about how Night of the Comet is a movie that feels weirdly like it's already aware of itself being an 80s movie yeah. at the time. Like it's being instantly retro nostalgic about the era it's in. War Games kind of feels like that because the movie leads off with the scene in the video arcade where he's playing Galaga and you're hearing the song in the background where I forget, like, we're living in the shade of a video arcade or something like that. There's a song playing about the fact that, like, society is consumed by video games. It's like, this is what we would do now as a show or movie about the 80s and they were doing it already. So... And in 83, no less. Yeah, it's strangely self-aware about what's going on. But I also think it's a great techno thriller, apparently. Um, <laughs> it's got a great run through as, as, you know, things escalate. He realizes what's going on. He has to evade the authorities. Ali Sheedy comes in. It's a very sweet relationship because they're high school kids. And frankly, also, the other thing, we've talked about this a lot, about 99 times out of 100 High school characters in movies never read as the correct age because they're not cast that way and it doesn't feel right. And Hackers, we got to admit. A little bit. Also doesn't, I mean, they're supposed to be in high school, but come on. And yet, this one feels like it's pretty 
believable. They feel like teenagers. They feel like teenagers. And I feel like the movie treats them properly in that there is a kiss by the end. There's the little sense that, yeah, maybe there's something happening between them. But what happens between them is handled very sweetly. Like, it's not like, oh, they're the romantic couple. They're kids. And I think it does it very nicely in this movie. There's an innocence to all that that I think really works. And despite the fact that there's really dark stuff going on and the threat of war, the movie never gets too dark about it, which actually I think you felt was like, sometimes I think you felt the movie was being a little too glib about some of it. I mean, it's a bit cheeky at times. It's like, it's clear like by the time you're like halfway through, not even, it's very clear what is happening. Like to all the people involved, it's clear that the computer program that has been set up to run scenarios and replace the human component of deciding whether to launch something, that there's the aspect of that training module that was not eliminated and the accounts weren't eliminated and it's still active and it's what's causing this problem and they know this and then more problems happen and they don't ever say did you check the computer again to see if it's causing the problem instead they're like russia's launching nuclear subs and it's like well okay but like 10 minutes ago (laughs) it was the computer running a training module and you know that Mm -hmm. and it's like they don't think to go back to that you've got you know the general who very clearly is marked for some comeuppance and like needs hubris and like the whole movie looks like he is so aroused at the idea of hitting that button and launching the nukes like to a point that's a little unsettling and like i don't know if children should be around him (laughs) and you know yet by the end he's got to be the one who makes the call to say do i trust what they're telling me about this computer that i know is true because it's been proven to me already but he's got to have that big sweat in it moment where he's like, do I push it? Do I not push it? And the thing that made me extra nervous in that scene, it's the kind of stuff that just gives me such anxiety watching movies, is that the guy whose job it is to actually push the button still has to wait for his okay to push it. Right. But while he's waiting, he's hovering like a millimeter over the button. All he's got to do is sneeze and he launches the nukes accidentally. Yep. And then after the danger is passed and they realize, you know, oh, we're not getting hit by missiles, he's still hovering <laughs> over the button. And I'm like, would you just close the hatch on that thing? Like, put the plastic back Close the button hatch, over please. It. So there are moments like that, which to me just feel a little too glib, I guess is the right word. But I do think that Part of that is just that you've got a situation that's very high stakes, but for the most part, it's being filtered through the lens of teenagers who are viewing this high stakes situation. And they're sort of our audience view characters for understanding what's going on. And so, of course, they're not necessarily going to take it as seriously, maybe, as an adult would. You know, the same people who when they find an article saying that Dr. Falcon had died and, you know, she's like, oh, he was 
seems young. And he's like, well, he was 41. She's like, oh, that is old. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're teenagers. Exactly. Like, they they yeah. don't fully understand how the world works. But they understand enough that they can have their own agency and she can buy plane tickets and, like, sort of travel to find him and, like, entangle herself in this scenario because she's like, screw it. Like, I can do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to go along and see what's happening. So, I mean, for a movie that's so just not real feeling in terms of the grander scenario, like, I just can't imagine even then them putting anything in the hands of a computer that had its own consciousness and, like, didn't have a failsafe to it. But the portrayal of the kids, like our teen characters, feels like a very real mix of their actual intelligence, their actual ignorance, their worldview, their attitudes, the sort of flippant way that he's willing to just be like, you got all these games here, but I'm going to pick the thermonuclear war. And the computer is just sort of like, are you sure you want to do that one? Yeah, he does say if you want to play chess instead. So yeah. It's like, no. Like, wouldn't you rather play a nice game of chess? And he's like, man, I could play chess anytime. But, I, like, how often do I get to hack into the computer with this brand new game called Thermonuclear War that I've never played before? I do like that Joshua's reply to that is fine. <laughs> it's like, whatever. Cool. Like, I don't do that already all day, every day. But all right. Yeah. And I also love that his idea of, like, the most amazing cutting-edge game is still just text-based green text on a screen, like you were just saying hackers would look like. This is where we are. As a kid, I can't remember now when I first got the Commodore 64. That was my first computer. And uh, you said, like, you're not a programmer. I did my share of basic. I typed in just endless, endless lines of numbers. I would buy all the magazines... And also, again, people of a certain age probably remember these. I can't remember what they were. It was like, I can't even remember now what the names of them were. Someone will tell us. What, the magazines? Yeah, they, there were several magazines. I used to get one in particular every month, and it would have, like, reviews of all the games, stuff, you know. It was for all platforms. And so I'd be looking for what's on C64. But also there would be programs in basic and it would be like, you know, you turn to the back of the, of the thing, and it would have a long thing, type all this in, and sometimes you'd luck out and it would be something like a game. And it would like the, the sprite data alone was like just, and, and if you got one thing wrong, you're typing in zero, you know, comma, zero, zero, three, comma, three, four, nine. And you got to type all of that in. You'd take like a half hour, an hour to type it in just for a little sprite to dance across the screen for five seconds. Or you'd get the crap issue that would give you the spreadsheet program you could type in and do that. It's like, I don't need that. So I was doing all that stuff. For me, it was a little different in that I think our, our family's first home computer was a Tandy oh my in God. 1986. Um, it's the big joke in my family of that, like, my mom went into labor with my sister when my dad was trying to put the Tandy together. <laughs> and, like, it's sort of joke that, like, she's actually the third kid that it was me and then it was Tandy and then was, it, that it was her. Was Tandy, was Tandy Radio Shack? I can't remember. I mean, it was a PC. It's not like okay. the Apple IIe's or something like that. I remember that. that my friend Louie, who's a massive computer genius, he will maybe deny some aspect of that, but he is. He was the kind of kid when, we got, when the first Mac Classic came out, he actually got it and took it apart 
just to see how it worked and then put it back together again. And I was like, you're never going to get that thing to work. And he you know, hits the power button. Boop, fine. Because he just, <laughs> that was him. But he had for a while, I remember, the Radio Shack color computer. And it was like the Coco. I think it was called the Coco. And we used to deliberately torture him, telling him Coco's a Joko. That was the level of humor that we had going. Nice. Yes, thank you. And, a bunch uh, of super geniuses. Yes. And uh, meanwhile, he's doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I was saying about Danny is I never really did programming with it so much as I think and maybe in a way that people who only came into computing in a more modern context, like post Windows, basically. Right. Post you, the desktop metaphor. Yeah. It's like if you came into computing post Windows, you don't really have a concept of how much work it took just to operate it yep so you know i didn't really do a lot of that programming but i understand the mechanics of all of it because you had to know all the dos commands to even just open a program you had to know the code to ask the computer to open the program and like i lived for these shareware games we would get Mm. these like dos shareware games and I'm sure now if you look at them, they probably look just like super ridiculous. But they were like all these side scrollers and things yeah. that were just my absolute favorite. And I loved one of them was called Jill of the Jungle. Hmm. And it was like the first time I'd played something with like a woman as like the main character. Was it like a pitfall kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it was a side scroller and you played Jill and you'd have to go through and go through all these levels. But then there were these elements where you would turn into a a bird or you could turn into a fish. When when I say turn into a bird, dear listeners, I mean, it was like a couple of pixels that like formed a V and then you'd flippity flap your arms. But it was just sort of, I had to know all of the codes to just make that run. it's sort of you watch a movie like this and if you were to watch it with only a perspective of what modern computing is you might think it's so unrealistic that this kid could do all the stuff that he can do and granted he's clearly like a genius i mean he's clearly super intelligent but everyone would have had at least a baseline understanding of how to do some of that if they ever operated a computer i would definitely argue that there are elements of war games that are actually far more science fiction than almost anything in hackers Mm. including for example for example the existence of the whopper of joshua probably being not probably definitely being far more heightened in reality than anything that was likely unless they're not telling us something from the 80s (laughs) as a kid i was saying at the beginning of the Commodore 64 part. I don't remember quite when that was. I probably had it already at that point. I can't remember now if that sounds about right. Because I also remember that when I had it, it was one of the original uh, C64s that had this particular, it was very round and thick beige case that was the, you know, it came all together. You just had to hook it to a television too. You didn't need a monitor specifically. Mm. And, uh, and it had the brown keyboard. Around about 86, 87, they remade it 
the because the styles were changing and it became this white like flatter thing and it was different looking and but I had that with a big five and a quarter inch disk drive and big file cabinet things of disks including lots of stuff we were trading back and forth at school that may or may not have been uh, copied games from I don't know where but I know that I could just put them in the disk drive and I had games. <laughs> But I was in love with David's setup in in the movie because I loved the idea of putting the receiver of the phone into that cradle. And I never got that because when we were doing it, we were just past the point where those kind of modems were phased out and it was going to just a little box, box that went modem. through with the, with the little clippy uh, wires, the, the fiber optic wire, whatever, the phone lines. And so I missed out on that. I always I was always fascinated too by the fact that he had eight inch discs, which I think up to a certain point they were still using at like TV stations and in businesses. And he had the big kerchunk when he puts the disc in. I thought I want that. I want the eight inch disc. I don't think we ever had the eight inch. The like yeah. the five and a quarter. Yeah, we had those. Oh, it's just and that certain finish they had. There was like this matte finish they had to him. The, that's another thing, too, is the fascination that we all develop with the tactile experience of things. And it occurs to me also that the the finish on like a five and a quarter inch disc goes all the way back to the feel of certain 60s technology that also is the communicator in Star Trek has that black like matte thing. It's all connected. Why we're all crazy for these things. It all fits together. I think the first time I ever felt like oh my god i'm older than the people around me was i mean this was quite a few years ago in an office environment and the youngest person in our office just sort of randomly out of nowhere asked the collected group of us you know why do they call it a floppy disk if it's made of hard plastic and i just had this moment of like i didn't it didn't even occur to me that that is like a knowledge base that didn't mm. exist for some people, especially people who I would still consider in a certain sense peers, but like clearly, I guess not in that sense. It's sort of like at the youngest end of my peer group and I'm kind of at the oldest end of my peer group. And it's there's technologically speaking such a huge gap between our experiences and I think when you watch movies like these, it's sort of like one of the reasons they stick. And it's something that you kind of brought up earlier is that for you in 83 and for me in 95, it's like it's hitting us right at the right developmental point. Exactly. For us. Almost exactly based on the timing. For like how that sticks for yeah. us and, you know, just sort of create sort of... um it, maybe not our first impression of what this technology was, but sort of our first experience seeing it being given the film treatment that like we'd only ever used it or lived it like at home for general use. It's a marvel to me of like just those little things that create such a huge shared cultural experience that will like suddenly cut off. So it's like there's a certain age of person in existence now for whom it will mean nothing when you talk about lifting up a telephone receiver and hearing the modem sound and like frantically hanging it up because you're like oh 
hell no, I just like screwed with somebody's, you know, online experience in the house. So, I mean, I guess we sort of digress down technology lane here. Also, I I feel like the science fiction aspect, I think the voice part is probably, we were talking about whether Mm. it's true. I don't know if anybody out there who listens to us could give us any feedback on this, but it does feel like the notion that Joshua could be heard and that that voice would actually be a signal included and that you could just have a speaker you could click on doesn't sound like something that was very likely then. Because then also, I mean, we then start hearing him all the time, but that's a plot device. I mean, that's a movie device. You right. know that we're not hearing it through David's speaker. We're hearing it because we're, we now know that's how Joshua sounds and it's a character in the movie, so we got to keep hearing him. But that first time, it's weird. I, I don't know that that's likely that that's really how that would work. But I also wanted to point out that like they also both are movies with messages. Hackers has a very anti-corporate message. Hide the planet! Hide the planet! Shut up and get in the car! Hide the planet! Hide the planet! The notion of things being available to everyone and that no one entity should have control and that and the idea that like commodities yes. should be available and there are some things that shouldn't cost what they do because it should just be a public service. And this movie, of course, is very definitively and I mean, not remotely subtle and one could argue cheesy in the same way as Hackers was cheesy. Very sledgehammer in its anti-war message. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. Where we have to sit there, and I have to admit, I love this movie. It's a childhood favorite. Watching it as an adult at this point in my life, I started to feel the same thing you've often talked about about movies from my time that you find slow or that the pacing, I started to feel like the pacing was a bit slow in this. And at the end, when we have to wait for Joshua to play 4,000 tic-tac-toe games only to then play 4,000 variants on global thermonuclear war, I was starting to get like, all right, I get it. We can get to the point now. And it was a little slow. But the idea we have to watch him do that so that he can say his one of his trademark lines. And in that moment, realize, hey, if the computer can figure it out, how come we can't? Meanwhile, Reagan's watching this movie and saying, we need more legislation about computers. And wouldn't it be good if we had lasers in space? Speaking of which, arguably, war games may have actually had the exact opposite effect of what was intended in making its grand statement, which is kind of sad when you think about it. And ultimately is often what happens when the people watching a piece of media are not intelligent enough to dissect the message because all they're going to do is watch war games and think could somebody get like get into our systems here and and cause all of our systems to malfunction and causes should we have to like prosecute and protect ourselves against all of these people who are who know what computers are and how to use them and it's like no you, you need those people to help you solve problems, but in vilifying them, you're going to create a culture of people who are your enemies now instead of people who could be working with you to make this all work better. I think what we're basically saying is hack the planet. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky. That's NB Lit of Sky. And Arnold at Doctor of the Dead. That's me. 
Our movies this episode were Hackers, 1995, and War Games, 1983. Fine. Tools in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, folks on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. You better figure out what's on that disc, because we're being framed. It's in that place where I put that thing that time.